couple things. Uh, after service, we're going to have a brief meeting about our Fourth of July celebration. So if you've been tabbed to help, we expect you in the meeting. <laughs> don't, don't skip out on us. And we're grilling hamburgers and hot dogs on the 4th. But it's a potluck, so bring a side dish if you would. But we'll supply the hamburgers and hot dogs, so uh, come on out. The 4th, we're having a bluegrass band. There's two kinds of music, you know that. There's blue and there's grass, and that's it. Love bluegrass. No, country's third. <laughs> but uh, this morning we're in Genesis chapter 28. We're going to finish up verses 18 through 22, and then we're going to look at 29, 1 through 14. Jacob, a young man of only 75 years old, heads out on his journey to Haran. He's out, he's beginning a new life away from mom and dad. It's about time he's 75. He's sent packing by his parents to find a wife among his mother's kinfolks. Jacob, he's leaving home, and the one of the reasons he's leaving home is because Esau, his brother, has grieved his parents with the wives that he has taken. His selections of wives have come from the daughters of Heth, who was a Hittite. Esau will continue his rebellion by going to Uncle Ishmael, and uh, he will take Mahala, Mahalath, or whatever, as a wife. And in the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Esau, you were a close-knit family, especially if you were a family that lived out in the tents and followed the sheep and this kind of thing. And it was your family sort of against the world, and Esau has made things difficult in the family. In those days, you lived in a tight little community, tents next to one another. You shared the same campfire. Many of the meals were shared. And you even fought against the common enemy that would come against your family. Now Esau has gone out and he's brought Hittite wives into the family circle. And this grieves Rebekah and Isaac. Wives that are daughters of unbelievers. Wives that are accustomed to idol worship. And that's in their family background. On that note, immigration in America is a hot item, a hot political item. The problem with immigration to America is many of these people that immigrate to America bring their false gods with them. We're a melting pot of many nations, many peoples, 
but we're supposed to be a Christian nation, and many of these people that immigrate to America bring their false gods with them and the worship of their false gods. Esau, his new wife, Mahalath, is none other than Ishmael's daughter. Now remember, Ishmael sent, uh, was sent away by Abraham to keep family peace. So Ishmael has been sent out of the family, and it was for the good of the family. And now we see Esau, Jacob's brother, and he's bringing Ishmael back into the family circle. And in the best of circumstances, how difficult it is for different cultures to coexist as a family. You got different mores, you have different values, and even different gods. And trying to blend worship into a family, part of that family worshiping the living God and others that respect and worship idols. That can be difficult. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul writes, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness. Now we usually think of that in terms of marriage, but that can be applied to partnerships in business also. But if you're in a relationship, in a, a union of a marriage, for instance, with an unbeliever, and that unbeliever is willing to stay with you, that doesn't give you a right to leave you should also be willing to stay and make the best of the situation. But we have here Esau purposefully marrying wives that bring grief and discord to his family, in particular, his mother. Rebecca, with her favorite son, Jacob, now gone he's off to Haran, lives an unhappy, miserable life, and she will never see her son again, nor will she see his children. She'll never see the grandchildren there. Isaac, he has blessed Jacob versus Esau, and now all he does is he waits for death. And it's a very sad picture there of Rebekah and Isaac. But back to Jacob. God has given Jacob a dream of a stairway from earth to heaven. And on this stairway, and it's a very, very huge stairway, you have angels ascending and descending from heaven to earth and vice versa. Jacob names the place where he has his dream, Bethel, which simply means house of God. God speaks to Jacob as he's leaving his family, and he speaks comforting words to Jacob. I, God, am with you, and I will keep you. So let's look at the verses 18 through 22 of chapter 28. 
Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city had been previously Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up as a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Jacob takes the stone he has used as a pillow that evening where he had his dream, and he pours oil on it. This is a stone that quite possibly was from the altar that grandfather Abraham had built there. Now Jacob, he's moved by this dream. He's moved by the comforting words of God. And Jacob feels obligated to dedicate himself to God after having God speak such comforting words to him. Listen to his vow. Listen to Jacob's promise. If God will be with me, and if God will keep me in the way that I'm going, and if God will give me bread and clothing so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then I'm going to give God a break. I'm going to let him be my Lord. Such a deal for God, Jacob. <laughs> you look at that. Okay. <laughs> Jacob, he's only doing what many of us do without realizing it sometimes. Jacob is trying to manipulate God into taking care of him when God has already declared, I am with you and I will bless you. But that isn't good enough for Jacob. He wants more. So Jacob's vow points out the more that he wants. And he's simply trying to make a deal with God. If you will serve me, God, bless me and do all that you said, then I'm going to let you be my God. Where do you sign up for that? <laughs> now, today we have many teachings that go in the Christian faith, and there's faith in my faith doctrine out there, positive confession, and it's always positive confession for myself. And the whole prosperity doctrine movement is nothing more than prideful man trying to reverse the roles of God and man. Where man, by quoting scripture, and usually out of context, can force God into being his servant, not man being God's servant. This prosperity teaching, by the way, has great appeal in third world nations. In a very poor culture, if you promise them health and wealth, they sign up real quick. And one of the red flags of erroneous doctrine is when the attention, when the emphasis is removed from God and put on to self. Watch out for that. When we 
begin to talk about all we can be in my prosperity and we push aside the worship of God and being obedient to him, be careful, be careful. But Jacob continues and he says, not only that, God, not only am I going to make you God if you really bless me, but I'm going to give you a tithe. Yeah, we're talking 10%, God. <laughs> and we can see how foolish Jacob is being. Some way, somehow, Jacob thinks God needs his money. And that God should jump at this offer or this deal that Jacob is offering him. And it's easy for us to read this account and say how foolish Jacob is being. And it would be comical if it wasn't so tragic. But Jacob is simply revealing his heart to God. I have heard people say, I promised God I would tithe, I would give 10% if he would bless me with a big promotion or maybe a better paying job, if he would heal my sickness or restore my marriage. You fill in that blank. Have you ever tried to make a deal with God that you would be a giver if he would do something? I hope not. But in verse 22, we hear Jacob say, I will surely give a tenth to you, God. And Jacob feels like he's doing God a favor. And all that Jacob wants in return is for God to bless him, protect him, and bring him back home safely. God, you multiply my 90%, and I'm going to give you 10. <laughs> Let me just say this. Whatever you give to God, do so from a thankful heart, from a heart that's full of uh, thanksgiving, a cheerful heart. If you've attended here for any length of time, you notice we do not pass an offering plate. we got offering boxes in the bag. Our desire for you as a believer is for you to have the opportunity to give to God as an act of worship between you and God. And please never have that attitude of Jacob that you're helping God out with your tithes and your offerings. I was at Big Calvary in Costa Mesa one time when Chuck Smith kind of won my heart. <laughs> Because at the end of the service, he stood up and said, uh, if you're a non-believer and you have put money into the offering plate, we want you to come, come to the ushers after the service and get your money back because giving is for believers, not unbelievers. Now, how many times do you hear that? <laughs> I said, go, Chuck. <laughs> and I went forward and got my no. <laughs> but Jacob's bad attitude of bless me, God, and I will make you Lord of my life. That attitude in Jacob will bring about a 20-year struggle 
between God and Jacob that culminates in that same area when Jacob wrestles with God when he returned, when he's returning to his homeland. 20-year struggle for God to remove that selfish attitude that permeates Jacob's life. So now let's look at chapter 29, and we're going to look at the first 14 verse. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. And out of the well they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth. Now all the flocks would be gathered there, and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. And Jacob said to them, My brethren, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. And then he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said to them, Is he well? And they said, He is well. And look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. Then he said, Look, it is still high day. Is it not time for the cattle to be gathered together, water the sheep, and go and feed them? But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together, and they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we watered the sheep. Now while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son. So she ran and told her father. And then it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely your bone are my bone and flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Jacob has been on the road. He has been traveling for several weeks. It's about 500 miles from Beersheba to Haran. And he comes upon this well. And around the well are several flocks of sheep. Jacob he doesn't know where he is, so he asks the local shepherds, where are you from? And they say, Haran. And Jacob has finally reached his destination. But how was he to know where he was? Because there were no road signs. There were no signs that says, welcome to Huntsville or Madison. And when you enter Alabama, some of the signs that say, as you enter, say, Alabama, the beautiful. Well, that depends where you're entering. It's not always so beautiful. <laughs> but let me tell you about going up to Tennessee. When you go north on Scott Road, my road, there are no signs that say, welcome to Tennessee. But you're in Tennessee, and the first landmark that you will see going up Scott Road 
into Tennessee. On the right is a white house that sits back off to the right. That's our house. We're the first ones. But city signs and roads are a blessing, especially if you don't have GPS. I'm amazed at how many people have that anymore. However, Jacob has arrived in Haran. He is asked about Uncle Laban, is he well? And then he's told, hey, here comes his daughter, Rachel. Uh, she's come to water the sheep, for Rachel is a shepherdess. But Jacob knows a little bit about sheep. He, too, is a shepherd. And Jacob tells the shepherd, it isn't time to be watering sheep. Go out and feed them, then bring them back and water them. Again, Jacob knew something about taking care of animals. I know a little bit about feeding cows. We've got a stream that runs. I don't have to water them, so they got water. Up around November, the grass quits growing, and we start feeding the cows hay. Hay. <laughs> and... They are so anxious to get into that hay sometimes that while I'm still on the tractor and I'm taking it down to them, they will run up to the tractor and start eating it before I've even stopped. And I'm going to run over one of them, I'm sure, one of these days. But they're, they're eating this hay because they're so anxious to get it. I knew you wanted to know that about cows, so I slid that right in there. But these shepherds, and especially the shepherdess, they have a problem of watering the sheep there at Haran because there's a large stone that sits over the mouth of the well. Several of the shepherd uh, boys or men would get together and they would roll the stone away, water the sheep, then they would put the stone back in place to protect the well. This past week, I caught the tail end of uh, one of those programs on TV, probably the Discovery Channel or something like that, and there were six experts, doomsday experts, and they were talking about the apocalypse that now faced America. And I said, well, this should be interesting to get six guys in their opinion of what's going to be the coming calamities. But the two most popular, eminent popular calamities were economic collapse. I mean, yeah, okay. And where your currency basically has no value. And But the other one surprised me. The second most popular calamity that they felt that was coming to America was food shortages coupled with water shortages. Now, here in the South, we have lots of water, especially east of the Mississippi. But according to these prophets of doom, food travels an average of 1,400 miles to get to your table. I go, wow. <laughs> My cow travels... Uh, not even 400 yards, but anyway. Anyone can see the possibilities of disasters in disrupting the food chain 
if food has to travel 1,400 miles to get to your table or your grocery store. About two years ago, in April it was two years ago, uh, here in Huntsville, in Madison, we lost power for a week after the tornadoes. Restaurants closed down. They had no way to cook the food or anything else. Grocery stores could not sell their food, not from the coolers and freezers, because the danger of rotting meat and bacteria and so forth. And so we had a mini crisis here in North Alabama. People had to drive to Tennessee to get gas, but we, we shared with you. And uh, many of the gas stations, however, would not take credit cards. You had to have cash to buy gas. There were some people from church here that came up to our house to take a hot shower because you need power to heat your water. And water became a scarcity. Before that, though, you remember Katrina? When Katrina hit the Gulf Coast, I called a pastor friend of mine down in Biloxi, Mississippi, and I asked him, what do you need? What do you folks need? Top of the list, drinking water, drinking water. So right here in America, the land of plenty, shortages of food and water can happen in a moment. For these shepherds in Haran, water was something to be protected. They would roll this huge stone over the mouth of the well. But enter Jacob. Now Jacob, he's wanting to show his strength and his power and he's wanting to show his concern for Rachel. And he rolls the stone away from the well, and he waters the sheep of Rachel. Now, that isn't your typical show of strength and power. Today, we men folk, we like to open those tight lids on jelly jars. Yeah, that's, that's one way we show our strength. We like to carry in the crock pots on potluck Sunday just to show you ladies that we still got it but Jacob he has watered Rachel's sheep and he can no longer control his emotions and he kisses Rachel and then he lifts up his voice and he wept hopefully this kiss was not one of those sloppy romantic kisses you know what I mean I hope it was one of those far eastern peck on the cheek type things and that kind of explains the kiss but he lifts up his voice and weeps when he sees his cousin I want to say to him get a grip Jacob <laughs> that's all I can think to tell him <laughs> and then Jacob he's going to explain to Rachel who he is I'm Rebecca's son. Rebecca is Laban's uh, sister, the father of Rachel. So, Rachel, we are cousins. Rachel runs off to tell her dad, and she tells dad the good news. And then Laban hears that his nephew is in town. He runs to meet Jacob. Laban embraces Jacob, kisses Jacob, and brings him home 
to stay with him. And Jacob gives all the details as to why he has traveled to Haran. Laban, he's very delighted to have Jacob as his nephew, as a house guest. Jacob is wanting to make himself useful there. And, uh, and so it's a good relationship. But Laban greets Jacob with, you are my bone and my flesh. Sort of an unusual greeting. And Jacob, liking the fact that he's found family, found someone to be with, he's making himself useful in Laban's household. Laban sees this, and he's thinking, what do I have to do to keep you around, Jacob? And what would you require? What would you want your wages to be? And next week, we'll see that. We'll see what Jacob is willing to work for. And it's too lengthy to get into, and our time is getting away from us. But the primary lesson in this whole situation, this whole uh, vow of Jacob, you know, if you will do this for me, God, if you will do that, if you will do that, is understand that God is for us. And we don't have to make deals to get God on our side. We don't have to promise great things for God to bless us. Jacob, he should have offered God his tithes and his offerings from a thankful heart. Not trying to parlay his offering into a blessing for himself. You see, God loves a cheerful giver. He loves them. And that alone should motivate us to be a giver. It's that simple. Amen? Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. Father God, So many times I think we're like Jacob without realizing it, trying to make deals with you for your, for your blessings. Help us to understand that you are for us and that you love us and you want to show yourself strong on our behalf. Help us to understand that love, Lord. And then, Lord, allow us to love you in return. It's so wonderful. It's so great. Your plan with man is so good. You show us love and we respond to it, Lord. Thank you for salvation through Jesus. Thank you for caring about us. And we don't have to make deals with you to get your affections, to get your favor. Thank you for that, Lord. And we would just pray, Lord, that you would be with us uh, this coming week. We pray for our 4th of July celebration. May it bless our neighborhood. May it bless our friends and that we bring out. We just want to be a blessing to those around us, Lord. So help us to do that.
Be with us, Lord. Thank you for your goodness to us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And before I bless you.